So if we begin with the first reader uh, of the afternoon, uh, it's, it's, I'm very pleased to see everybody here, um, and I hope you'll come to all the events of this week. Um, can we start? First. Yeah. Jay, Jay Thank you for coming. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you the work of Patrick Besson. Patrick uh, has recently won the Grand Prix de Romain de l'Académie Française for his novel Dara, uh, from which I'm going to read a brief excerpt momentarily. And I should also mention, um, Patrick is much too young to have written nine books, but I'm afraid that he has. <laughs> and <coughs> since I since I learned this, I felt several years older or, or several novels lazier, I'm not sure which. Eight of, uh, eight of those books are novels, and one is a collection of essays. Uh, I will be reading an excerpt from Dara, and I will be followed by Patrick. There's a brief uh, linguistic joke buried in the middle here. I'm not going to flag it for you, but we did our best at the last minute trying to overcome some of the difficulties of, of translation, and I hope you'll bear with us. I, I think I should also mention, uh, just to save confusion, that a, a father is here addressing his daughter. Our honeymoon that was something we did two years later. We went to Yugoslavia. What a strange destiny was ours. A wedding after ten years living together and a honeymoon two years after our wedding, all under the slightly distraught gaze of our daughter. And on top of everything, your mother had suggested to Peggy that she come with us. The latter eagerly accepted, although not without having tactfully phoned me at work to check whether her presence would bother me. Goodness, I answered, Dara and I were no longer what you might call newlyweds, and I genuinely appreciate her company. Peggy was a year or two older than your mother. She was small and plump. She very much liked wearing flimsy dresses and showing off her legs and shoulders. Much as she found her friend splendid, Dara deplored that side of her, and whenever she was making her a suit or a skirt, she did her utmost to make them longer than Peggy wanted them, with the result that Peggy hardly ever wore them. This clash, which had become legendary among our friends, went back to the two women's first encounter. Peggy had come to our flat on the recommendation of one of her neighbors, who'd praised Dara's know-how and low prices. It was mid-afternoon. Your mother served tea and biscuits to her new customer. She always had to get people to eat. Peggy immediately fell under the spell of this tall, spontaneous, and expansive Yugoslav. 
They discussed the dress's shape and color. Peggy had no specific wishes. In fact, she was overcome by the unexpected pleasure of drinking tea, eating biscuits, and leafing through fashion magazines in this modest flat whose smell and furnishings she'd initially hated. She couldn't bring herself to leave. It had got to the stage where your mother had wondered whether the little lady from Rue de Courcelles didn't have particular inclinations. Your return from school put a stop to this situation. Peggy got up, smoothed down her skirt, and sh said she was longing for the first fitting, which your mother arranged for the following Monday. She asked Peggy if she wanted her to call a taxi. The answer was, I've kept the one I came in. He's waiting for me downstairs. You can guess how much these two sentences threw your mother. That evening, she could speak of nothing other than this eccentric woman who'd allowed the meter of her taxi to tick over for more than two hours. Peggy went through the same rigmarole at the first and second sittings. Through the window, Dara could see the car parked along the avenue. The driver read a newspaper or thoughtfully smoked a cigarette. Your mother told me she was worried about making a mess of the dress because the thought of that meter ticking over for nothing while Peggy gazed at herself in the big hall mirror stopped her concentrating. At the third fitting, making the most of the fact that her customer now seemed to see her as a respectable acquaintance rather than a suburban dressmaker, she owned up to all the embarrassment being caused by that stationary taxi into which vast sums of money were pouring so that she couldn't help thinking it would be better spent on UNICEF or the Red Cross. There was so much poverty in the world. Peggy defended herself with effective unconcern. It was such a handy arrangement, and anyway, it didn't cost as much as all that. She negotiated a set price. This argument disarmed Dara. She told me that she'd suddenly felt herself stop hearing the dreadful click-click of the meter, and her mind had been completely at ease as she launched into a lively discussion with Peggy, the first of a long series, on the appropriateness of shortening the dress. The two women were soon very close. They telephoned once one another at least once a day. They went to the theater together or shared a plate of seafood in a brasserie on the Grand Boulevards. Their greatest pleasure was to go around the shops together. They swapped comments about the clothes in the windows. They'd walk in determined not to buy anything. Each would try on two or three things while asking the assistant what Dara called trick questions. Then they left, saying they might call back, a promise which I imagine left the assistant quite cold. Toward the end of the afternoon, they'd have a cup of tea in the Café de la Paix. Their feet hurt. Their discussions were always in some way related to fashion. This seemed to Dara incompatible with dressmaking. The dresses she created were unique. You weren't afraid when you went out into the street or arrived at someone's house that you'd see someone else dressed the same. To be fashionable, didn't that mean firstly to look like no one else? For Peggy, knowing how to dress was like knowing how to undress. It had no purpose other than to seduce men. 
This entirely sensual approach to the matter shocked Dara. But she had her very own way of being shocked. She tipped her head back, gave a low laugh, and said that Peggy was priceless. What on earth was it that she found in men? They were either louts or pimps or, and it seems to me that Dara classed me in this last category, complete pains in the neck. Who might have imagined that it wasn't out of offhandedness that this beautiful, loose-limbed, and elegant woman talked about men in this way, but out of pure fear of sex? At the age of 40, your mother hadn't resolved any of the sexual problems that teenagers face, which, as you can imagine, could hardly be said of Peggy. At 18, Peggy had married a greengrocer, a handsome young man with a romantic face. Rapidly, and to the astonishment of all those who knew him, he made a fortune. In 1955, he bought the Cour des Halles on Avenue de Courcelles, where, throughout the 60s and 70s, we shopped for our supplies of melons and avocado pears. It was there that one morning in July of 1964, he died of a heart attack. Peggy found herself alone. She had not a single woman friend. For many months, she lived in a state of indecision. She didn't dare have the good time she was desperate for. She never managed to warm to any of the women customers sufficiently to share a few moments of relaxation. As for the other women traders in the neighborhood, she found them vulgar and untrustworthy. So she stayed at home on her own. She listened to the radio, drinking small glasses of her favorite aperitif. You could understand why she was instantly seduced by Dara, whose best friend she did her best to become within weeks. Your mother was neither one of those snotty-sounding bourgeois whose reserve Peggy found so tedious and fearsome, nor a sly and boastful haberdashery or cafe owner. She was modest, but knew how to hold herself. Admittedly, she was no intellectual, but then, nor was Peggy. And she envied Dara her singing accent and her relaxed, good-natured manner that saved her even appearing ridiculous in company. Finally, Dara always agreed to any suggestion to go out, the cinema, theater, music hall, or a Chinese restaurant. The ideal companion for a widow who aspired with all her will to being happy. In addition, Peggy soon noticed that your mother had the knack of attracting men while simultaneously and magically banishing their shyness. The pair of them were accosted at least 10 times a day. Of course, out of the total, there were many rejects. But each time an appetizing prey presented himself, Peggy expended a great wealth of ingenuity to fix a meeting without Dara noticing. The business would be concluded a few days later in a hotel in the 17th arrondissement on the Place Clichy side, two metro stations away from the Cour d'Alles. You're wondering how I know all this? Well, Peggy herself told me. I seem to be saying that the relationship between Peggy and Dara was the same as that between a shark and its pilot fish. But that would be to overlook your mother's puritanism. 
She was never the willing accomplice to Peggy's escapades, and the latter had to listen patiently to the lectures on morals that your mother gave her whenever Peggy ventured to tell her about one of her adventures. Dara didn't blame her for having a good time. Far from it. What seemed sinful to her wasn't the fact of having pleasure, but of having it with someone you weren't in love with. Ah, your mother and love. She placed it so high up that I get the feeling she was never able to grasp it. Had you asked Dara to tell you about her friendship with Peggy, she would have begun by saying that it had been one of the great fortunes of her life. The thought that so rich a woman should feel so much affection for her both astonished her and elevated her to heights of happiness and self-satisfaction of a sort she'd probably never reached before. But what surprised her wasn't that she had been chosen, but that such a well-off woman should show good taste. There had been so many others who'd been stupid enough to treat her like a maidservant and to give her the attention they'd give to a fly. This had been all the more wounding to her because since her adolescence, the time of her first customers, refined Zagreb woman whose accounts of their travels entranced the young dressmaker, she had harbored a passion for people who were her social superiors. Given the same intensity, the friendship showed her by a poor woman had as much value as that of a rich one. But so much did she appreciate fine language and fine manners that she was, as it were, magically drawn toward better class people. So long as they weren't snobbish, of course. Yes, Daryl loved above all else to be liked by these delightful, magical creatures, and I don't think Peggy ever suspected the degree to which she gratified your mother by putting her on an equal footing. And that's discounting all the time she placed her on a pedestal, praising her beauty, her kindness, and even her intelligence. The day of our departure, we met up with Peggy at the station buffet in the Gare de Lyon. Yugoslavia began on the platform. Cardboard suitcases held together with bits of string, enormous kaskut, as your mother called them, wrapped up in tablecloths. People brought their last cartons of American cigarettes. They shouted out to each other from one carriage to the next. In the second-class compartments, passengers piled suitcases up dangerously on the luggage racks. It was a gloomy December evening. You had turned up your anorak collar. You'd wanted to trust the porters with your sport bag in which you were carrying magazines, a torch, and half a baguette, something I was only to find out about the following morning. As she always did when we were going away, Dara had given you a few francs to buy sweets to help you through the boredom of the journey. You'd chosen to buy bread less pricey and better for filling you up, as if we were going into exile, as if this were the exodus. Dara had taken charge of the operation. Peggy and I, dazed by the bustle in the station, faintly dreading the idea of soon finding ourselves in a socialist country, watched her with admiration. The porters obeyed her hand and foot. 
It was with obvious pleasure that she stopped them outside a first-class sleeper. It was decided that I'd get into the compartment and the suitcases would be handed to me through the window. Peggy came with me. Dara oversaw things from outside. You stayed to one side, motionless. You looked a bit offended, as if our excitement were disturbing some important daydream. Daryl was delighted because we'd be just the four of us in the compartment. It's a bit as if we're traveling in a proper sleeping car, she said. She settled down in one of the upper berths, the one facing the front of the train. Unfortunately, the front of the train was to become the back of the train during the night, and she woke up feeling very ill. Like your mother, you loved fresh air and heights. Thus, without having really intended it, Peggy and I found ourselves together at floor level. You're not going to keep your clothes on, protested Dara, just as we were lying down as discreetly as possible on our SNCF blankets. Since there were no outsiders among us, it would have been silly not to make ourselves comfortable. Your mother got a pair of pajamas out of my suitcase, and Peggy, a little embarrassed, took from hers a negligee and a dressing gown. She went off to change in the carriage toilet while I, grumbling and bumping into every corner of the compartment, took off my shirt and trousers. Dara made my bed. When she was climbing back up the ladder, I drew her to me and kissed her on the mouth, one of those cold, wet little kisses that I'd christened Return of the Wage Slave, and that Dara, who was never able to pronounce the French U of Bureau correctly, turned into Return of the Bureau. When Peggy got into bed, Daryl wished us all sweet dreams and put the light out. Soon, my eyes having grown accustomed to the darkness, I saw you crouching on your berth with your nose glued to the window. After about 10 minutes, being unable to sleep, I turned on my nightlife and opened the France Soir that I'd brought on the platform along with a couple bottles of mineral water. I read the sport page and the entertainment page. I wasn't interested in politics. I was just starting on the home news page when I got the feeling that Peggy was watching me. Your mother has often told you about the tendency I supposedly have of thinking that all women are mad about me. Fine. All the same, let me tell you that she was misreading my thoughts as usual. One day I'd simply said to her that any man, if he take the trouble, is capable of seducing any woman, and vice versa. You see how she stretched the truth. So I looked up from my paper and turned my head. I then got a shock that took me way back into my past, a shock similar to the one I'd had when, at 13, I had first caressed a woman's breast. Peggy had pushed back her blankets and shaken her thighs free from their cocoon of sheets. Her well-rounded breasts and the triangle of black hair showed through the negligee, which was as transparent as cellophane. 
But the most extraordinary thing was the prurient, sparkling look at that moment in the eyes of your mother's best friend. It promised me much pleasure, and I realized I really had set off on a lover's journey. So in the same way as I'd felt it was you I was marrying rather than Dara, I felt it was with Peggy rather than your mother that I'd be spending this honeymoon. Peggy held out her hand to me. With my spectacles on the end of my nose and Francois on my knees, I grasped hold of it and we remained like that for a few minutes, delicately stroking each other's fingers or, in fact, playfully attempting to break each other's bones. Patrick, are you going to read briefly? In French, okay. This is from Dara. to welcome these award-winning French authors. That is, until a few days ago, when I received the program information and found that each time I attempted to read it aloud, I kept sounding like Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> and so I must ask you now that if you do not wish to stay, you must immediately leave the room. <laughs> I studied French for many years to les années, but unfortunately it was to no avail. And even now my fingers are quite green with perspiration at the thought of standing up here being forced to mispronounce various words and no doubt receiving a failing grade. But in any event, on behalf of Pan American Center and the co-sponsors of the events, the cultural services of the French Embassy, and La Maison Francaise of New York University. I'd like to welcome everyone this evening. Um, unfortunately, Hector Bianciotti won't be able to attend for personal reasons. And I just have a few announcements. We'd like to thank the translators of the excerpts being read today. Nicholas Irving for her, Nicole Irving for her <laughs> translation of Patrick Besson's Dara. Mark Palizzati for his translation of Hector Bianjati's Sans la Miséricorde du Christ. Derek Mahan for his translation of Raphael Bellédou's Mes Nuits Sont Plus Belles Que Vos Jours. David Noakes for his translation of Michel Bredo's Naissance d'une Passion. Linda Coverdale for her translation of Jan Kefalek's Les Nos Barbares. Um, There are some upcoming events. Tuesday, October 21st at 8 
The readings in French will be Patrick Besson, presented by Georges Borchard, Hector Bianjati, presented by Frederic Berthet, Raphael Billedou, presented by Deborah Carl, and that takes place at La Maison Francaise, 16 Washington Muse, which is at University Place, south of 8th Street. Now, Wednesday, October 22nd at 8 p.m., the discussions in English, in English, fiction in France today, and the French writers will be Patrick Besson, Hector Bianjati, Raphael Billedou, Michel Brodeau, and Jan Keffler. And the American writers are Francine Duplessis Gray and Richard Sennett. And this is going to be introduced by Tom Bishop. No, it's going to be moderated by Tom Bishop, <laughs> introduced by Harvey Shapiro at the Penn headquarters. Thursday, the 23rd. Please write this down. There's going to be a test later on. <laughs> Readings in French. Michel Brodeau, presented by Dominique Nabokov. Jan Kefleck, presented and read by Francois Samuelson, and followed by a general discussion among the five French novelists. And this is at La Maison Française. Um, I, I'd like to invite you all to stick around afterwards. This evening there's going to be a reception. And um, we already heard the first reading of Jay McInerney, who I believe introduced Patrick Besson and read from Dara. Dara was the winner of the Grand Prix de Roman de l'Académie. Did I do something wrong? Um, okay, now I'll read everything that's going to happen and then, then we can hear it. Mark Palazzati will introduce Hector Bianjati and read from San La Misericorde du Christ, winner of the Prix Femina. Then we'll hear Lydia Davis, who's going to introduce Raphael Bellédou and read from Mes Nuits Sont Plus Belles Que Vos Jours, winner of the Prix Renaud Doe. Then we'll hear from Raymond Carver, who's going to introduce Michel Brodeau and read from Naisons d'une Passion, which was the winner of the Prix Medici. And finally, Linda Coverdale will introduce Jan Kefalek and read from Les Nos Barbares, winner of the Prix Goncourt, and then it will be followed by the reception. Thanks very much. Thank you, Tama. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Well, aside from being the only one who couldn't make it this evening, um, Hector Bianchotti distinguishes himself from these very talented French authors in that he's not French. He's Argentine of Italian parents. Uh, he was born in Argentina in 1930, moved to Europe in 1955, and has been living in Paris since 1961. He is an editor at uh, Edition Gallimard and the author of six previous books, uh, novels and short stories. Sans la miséricorde du Christ, which translates roughly as Without the Mercy of Christ, 
uh, is Hector's seventh book then, and the winner of the Prix Féminin. And it is also notable in that it's the first book that he has written directly in French. Up until now, he's written in Spanish. The passage that I'm about to read concerns the narrator's first meeting, or the circumstances of the narrator's first meeting, with the heroine of the book, a woman named Adelaide Marez, who, like the author, is Argentine, of Italian parents, now living in Paris. I first met Adelaide Marez on a Sunday. I had arrived at the Mercury Cafe at around three in the afternoon for a plate of ham and salad that I had promised myself, once again in vain, not to wash down with too much wine. It was the end of July, and in the stifling heat rose vapors of illness, ancient smoke, oily odors, and the sour smells of urine. Past the open windows, the abyss of the street lay under a low sky, heavy with approaching storm. At that moment, Adelaide must have been attaching collar and cuffs to the navy blue version of her dress, or else she was touching up her hair, parted in the middle, and rolling in tight spirals over her ears, of which only the lobes were visible. On each of them, she still wore the little earrings from her first communion, which she had made at about age 12. That morning, as a treat, she was going to the matinee at the Théâtre de la Renaissance. Verging on bankruptcy, the theater had forsaken its distinguished past and lent its lovely auditorium to an operetta company. There was a lot of hubbub in the Mercury Cafe that afternoon. The manager's parents, former cafe owners who had retired to their hometown, had come up to celebrate their granddaughter Rosette's 10th birthday. They were seated on a bench at the table, one as enormous as the other, shapeless, heavy, deformed, their red faces crisscrossed by a delta of tiny veins, immobilized by the meal about to end, by the alcohol, each wearing a frozen grimace of tranquil disgust. Their eyes were sunken flesh full of soft protuberances. Their gaze caught on no image in their field of vision, no memory. With them was their son, who flitted constantly between the table and the bar, and who, fortunately, aside from an occasional handshake, demonstrated no familiarity with the patrons, thus sparing me any involvement in the event. Meanwhile, the child tortured her dog and sorely tried the clientele's patience, especially that of the prostitutes, who were anxious to conclude transactions more stable than the passing commerce of the streets, by forcing them to admire the toys and clothes that she had received as birthday presents. Rosette was in the habit of eating with the working girls, who fussed over her and even demonstrated an affection for her that they would have liked to feel for their own child, the one who didn't exist. Rosette's mother was also there, of course. The birthday celebration had not smoothed the crease of ostentatious bitterness in the corners of her mouth. On the other hand, it had allowed her to add to her customary narrow skirt with a slit in back that went halfway up her thigh the transparency of a chiffon blouse that she wore braless. Her skirt parted when she climbed the stairs, which she always did slowly, casually, with the assurance given women by the certainty of being watched because they are attractive, or even because men can't help but show attraction when these women become enticing, especially in front of other men. She sat quietly, turning over in her hands a plastic cube 
in which someone had slipped color photographs of the meal that had not yet ended. Nothing set her apart from the prostitutes whom she had earlier greeted as friends, except for the absolute lack of makeup that she had imposed on herself, perhaps to set herself apart from them. Had she once belonged to that sisterhood? Or did she derive her pleasure from seeming as if she had, all the while knowing that her stature as the manager's wife assured her the respect of the clientele? She studied the sides of the cube, or planted and replanted in the cake a metal stem bearing a large green and pink knot and a card. Her in-laws paid no attention to her. Their gaze was turned toward the terrace, toward the street, toward nothing, catching nothing like survivors dazed by the long disaster of life. While the wife frequently picked up her glass of cognac, not really noticing, but savoring it like a connoisseur, the husband occasionally twisted off a last bite of baguette, which he kneaded between his thumb and forefinger before dipping it in the escargot dishes to sop up the little remaining garlic butter. Each time, his wife turned her head slightly toward him, saying nothing, just so he would know that she had seen him do it. Even between themselves, their gestures were the signs of the dying. At a certain moment, Rosette's mother got up and climbed the stairs. The scarce concealed nudity revealed by her blouse was more striking to the eye than the slit of her skirt. Then I noticed that the old couple, seated on the narrow bench, had taken off their hard city shoes and crossed their heavy feet over them. Their son, their daughter-in-law, Rosette, came and went, the latter in the state of overexcitement, false playfulness, and gracious treachery that characterizes all of us at the age when we haven't yet learned the virtues of dissimulation, when we want at all costs to make adults bow before minor impossibilities, false wants, tedious whims. In the midst of this intermittent agitation, the grandparents retained the impassiveness of archaic mammals, and their faces, as if erased by swelling, reddened still more. They had not altered their pose, and I had exhausted my supply of newspapers when, at around six o'clock, a group of people came in from the theater, followed shortly by the girls from the music hall. Adelaide had been seduced by what she saw as the unreality of the dancers' bodies and made up faces. As she had been walking, taking care not to stray too far from the theater, and had seen the dancers leave, she had unconsciously followed them to the Mercury. Her presence there surprised me. She suddenly realized what kind of place she was in and stopped, more a hesitation than a pause. I noticed the look of astonishment and anguish in her black eyes. I thought it was because of the situation, but learned afterward that it was their natural expression and that no sentiment, even one able to twist her features into a smile, could soften it. Time passes quickly and yet we live through much, without always knowing what it is we're living through. We go out, we begin anew each day, we take up where we left off under the shifting influence of moons and suns and the terrifying youth of nature. What characterizes us, Adelaide, you, or myself? Our degrees of intelligence, the shape of our noses, the way we behave, the ambitions that drive us, what we hope to accomplish, were originally no more than a chance meeting of genes with specific aims transmitted between two dribbles on a bed for a future battle whose field is this body, this machine of size, of fits and starts, of swerves and retreats. There comes a moment when many things that we have experienced passionately are pushed by time toward forgetfulness, 
while we ourselves are projected toward a different future. And yet something never changes, will never change, will resist, like the pit of the fruit that heat rots away. Something that is more ourselves than the rest, something uncertain, but of which we are certain. One never recovers from the hope of being oneself. Is this very audible, all the way to the back? No, lift it a little. Is this any better? <laughs> yes, all the way, okay. I'm very pleased to introduce Raphael Biedu, who is the author of five novels, uh, the first published when she was only 20, as well as one film, which was shown here uh, two years ago, I think, uh, La Femme Enfant, The Child Woman. Um, her most recent novel, Mes Nuits Sont Plus Belles Que Vos Jours, uh, from which I'm going to be reading today, appeared last year and was awarded the Prix Renaudot. It's going to be published by Viking in an English translation by Derek Mann. Uh, this is the story of a short-lived but violent passion that flares up between Lucas, a linguist, and Blanche, a singer, following a chance encounter at dusk on a cafe terrace. The story covers only three days, but within that time, an entire tragedy unfolds. While the book explores the rawness of emotion aroused by a love entered so suddenly, so blindly, that it is constantly threatened by misunderstanding. Between the lovers, there is no familiarity, no gradual familiarity, no context, no past to temper or modify their passion, which opens them so completely to each other and leaves them so unprotected that even the smallest discovery comes as a shock and more important discoveries can be devastating. In the scene I'll read, uh, Lucas suffers one of these shocks. The passage about halfway through the book comes at a point soon after Lucas and Blanche have made love for the first time. One footnote, uh, Lucas refers to Blanche throughout the novel as his wife, a sign of his complete commitment and desire to possess her beyond these few days. And this desire to possess her erupts often throughout the novel, though not in the scene I'm going to read, in physical violence, as though a slap were a desperate attempt to keep in communication. The final act of violence in the book uh, is the final possession. A loud knock on the door woke him with a start, and a woman in an apron appeared in the mist and roar of the sea. Oh, I'm sorry, she exclaimed, and the door closed again. He fell back heavily beside Blanche, who moaned a little, half-conscious. A strip of sunlight on the carpet struck her full in the face. He rose again at once, grappled with the shutters, and closed a curtain. 
Then he stepped over the mattress, fetched a glass of water from the bathroom, and knelt to support her head. Dry, swollen, and bruised, her lips parted with difficulty. He leaned on the mattress and held the glass to her mouth. She seemed to be trying to say something, and he leaned closer. Don't move, he heard her say. He burst out laughing. Don't move indeed, he said loudly. You'd better drink something. Open your eyes. She was trying to speak again. He listened and watched her mouth straining to articulate. Don't speak. Don't move, don't speak. Anything else, he laughed. What about eating? Don't eat either. He waited for a moment. He could feel her breathing regularly against his hand. He blew aside the veil of her hair trailing over her cheeks. Here, drink some water, he said. This time her whole face shuddered. Her eyelids contracted and she seemed angry. I know, she murmured. Since his arm could no longer support her without shaking, he rested her head gently on the mattress, arranged her hair, and let her go back to sleep. Naked, hungry, and happy, he went to the window, leaned on his elbows, and looked out. The recent heat had gone with the rain. The sand at the foot of the steps was still riddled from the raindrops. A playful wind bellied the skirts of the tents on the beach and rippled the flag flying to show it was safe to swim here. Vast, dazzling clouds, some distance from the sun, cast over the whole seaside with its escaping hats and its kites, the air of a public holiday. His raw consciousness, still moist, imbued with the night, could hardly bear this confrontation with the infinite. After the shadowy luxuriance of the world he had just left, the openness of the sea and sky, the harshness of the light, the scatter, the pointless shouting of the unknowing little dark figures below him, the absence of mystery in the world out there drove him back into the room where he closed another curtain. Steeped in red shadows shot through with lines of fire, the disorder of the room was delightful. Moving lively and silently on bare feet, he walked around it as if in a garden, shifting from one position to another. Hand on hip, one leg at rest, he contemplated with pleasure what he had done. All points of view converged on that silent riot of white at his feet. The pillows, his handkerchief, his clothes, the glass of water, his wife's dress and underclothes, and the tangled sheets on which locks of hair floated here and there like raven's wings. A little further, at the periphery of his vision, lay crumpled paper, a wastebasket, the overturned chair. Then the bolster, the note case Uncle Edward had given him when he finished his military service, the bedspread twisted like an escape rope. Then the alarm clock, an ashtray, the telephone, and suddenly between two high-heeled shoes, a canvas bag wide open to reveal jumbled together a hairbrush, sandals, a makeup box, a shawl, and a sheet of squared paper. It was easy enough to reach out his hand. He read, The Necklace of Pink Stones from the Antilles, August 75. The Rampant Lion from Lome, Togo. The Couchant Lion from Peking, first trip. The Monkey from Garua, Cameroon. The Little God from Abidjan. The orange dressing gown and toucan from Mexico, spring 78. The blue cat from Murano. The two straw owls from Shanghai. The malachite rabbit, Hong Kong. The dragon box from Peking, second trip. 
the red ivory cameo from New Delhi, first trip, the scarab from Conakry, the dressing gown from Kyoto, Japan, April or May, 79, the first bracelet of gold beads from Taif, Saudi Arabia, lost. The second bracelet of gold beads from Amman, Jordan. The elephant skirt from Delhi, January 80, first trip. The two glass drops and the yellow beads from Hebron, Israel. The first gray slip from Sumatra. The second gray skirt from Java. The fan of peacock feathers from New Delhi. The Nandi bowl from Madurai. The candied fruit from Damascus. Who would have thought to look at her that she had traveled so much? A breath of cold air passed over him, though he didn't allow himself to compare this with his own childhood in Auvergne, his long years in boarding school, his student years in Paris, and a few compulsory vacations, always in Europe. He calculated rapidly, 24, 25, hardly more, say 15 years old in 1965, 15 in the Antilles. Yes, that was possible but 18 in Mexico, her first grown-up dressing gown with Togo, China, and Cameroon in between, a second dressing gown only a year after the first. Between the first and second, there had been Venice, then one, two return trips to China, India, Guinea. No, it wasn't possible. And then all these animals, the schoolgirl precision, the bracelet lost and immediately replaced. Really, it made more sense to think of these as presents brought back perhaps by her father. He folded the page again tenderly and, slipping it into the bag, returned to her. She had recovered some color. Her face was smooth, her hair stuck to her forehead. The fine beads of sweat glistening on her skin seemed to rise from a glow of contentment. He gazed at her eyebrows, her large mouth, the way her hands were placed, the stone-like massiveness of her sleep. Poor thing. Only the evening before she had sung at the top of her voice. Violently alive, she had rushed down the steps of the casino, run to her friends, and now look at her, defeated. How she had struggled and how futile had been her furious assertion of her own freedom when it was already obvious that she wasn't free. Moved to tears, he held a finger to her nostrils and felt the faint breath of her life, a life which for several hours now had belonged to him, an entrancing gift come in the night all alone on her two feet. She moved silent slightly, and he noticed a gold speck gleaming in a hollow of the sheet. From among the folds, he drew out a tiny chain of square links, which he recognized at once as the second bracelet of gold beads from Amman. He closed his hand on the discovery, and deciding it was time she ate something, went to ring room service, crouching behind the bed frame and speaking in a low voice. Naked, busy, and alone, he came and went in her field of vision without looking at her. This was what this man was like in the morning, and she had a confused fear of knowing it. And before he could surprise her half awake, she closed her eyes again. The logic of his motions and gestures still escaping her, she took pleasure in prolonging her childlike happiness. At the same time, something about the fact of lying helplessly on the floor while he was up and about, parading his health and strength before her, frightened her in a way. He reappeared dressed in a white bathrobe. A moment later, there was a knock at the door. She watched him return with a large tray, which he placed on the table. In his zeal this morning, she sensed an ardent need to make reparation for some offense as much as to thank her. She watched him tear the bread and butter it. Then he
quickly. I'm scared. I think I'm going crazy. She felt his warm breath on her cheek and looked up at him. Didn't you sleep? He took her hand and straightened, searching for words. My bracelet, she exclaimed. She felt her wrist, and at the same time he put his hand in his pocket. I wonder how you lost it, he remarked slyly. He smiled and laid it on the sheet. It's like a child's bracelet, he added. Did your father give it to you? She summoned up her courage. No, she said, my husband. Before she had closed her mouth, he had gone to finish buttering the bread. Lucas, she cried, please don't. Are you having tea or coffee, he said. His tone was formal now. les heures comme mariés femmes les années. Midi sonna sans que l'un et l'autre encore aient appréhendé minuit. Dans le cadre de fenêtres, les voiliers lentement longeaient l'horizon du lit. Les bouillons de leurs draps finissaient aux lignes blanches de l'écume. Mâchoires à la renverse, cheveux épars, ils dormaient séparés malgré eux comme deux fusillés tombés n'importe comment. Loin des parents qui les avaient mis au monde, jusqu'à l'excès ils faisaient usage de leur corps. Il n'y avait pas deux jours qu'ils s'étaient parlé pour la première fois. La connaissance ne leur avait rien apporté que chacun ne sut déjà. Can you hear me back there? Yes? Yes. Yes. I'm pleased to introduce Michel Brodeau, who is the author of five novels. Uh, Michel Brodeau works for Le Monde, reviewing books in, in um, uh, American and uh, books of American and English literature, and he's also a film reviewer. His novel, his prize-winning novel, is Naissance d'une passion, which translates Birth of a Passion, and was the winner this year of the Prix Medici's. You cannot hear me? I'm sorry. I will read uh, pages 28 to 31 of the novel, and then 
skip ahead a few pages. Birth of a Passion. My cradle was already prepared in the geographical center, the very heart of Providence, my mother's bedroom. I could feel the great house radiating from myself, one floor above, another below, not to mention the cellar or the attic. On the second floor, where I was, my parents occupied a bedroom, a salon, a bathroom, dressing rooms, a linen room. Through the French window of the salon, they had access to the octagonal balcony which jutted out over the ground floor salon. It was surrounded by a white parapet and could be shaded by a large blue and white striped awning if the wind from the sea was not too strong. During the latter part of her pregnancy, my mother moved about only on rare occasions. Her meals were brought up to her and people came up to the second floor to visit her. She would only go from her bedroom to the bathroom, from the salon to the balcony. I could hear her heaving sighs of fatigue and lassitude. She found the time too long, the sun too hot. I could tell she was reading because of the habit she had of sometimes mumbling names or phrases that struck her fancy, and also because of a kind of cerebral buzzing, as if I were following on an imaginary screen the adventures recounted in the novel she had on her knees without being able to grasp either the characters or the events. She would contemplate the sea or the wallpaper of her bedroom, blue-white lilies on a green background, a curious evocation of fresh water and ponds in this saltwater region, or the wallpaper of the salon, sailors struggling against dragons with serpents' bodies, bats' wings, scales that were sharply pointed, jagged and gothic, mythological combats undoubtedly chosen by my grandfather, whose whimsically martial taste found its full expression on the ground floor where he had established his quarters. Temporarily, he used to say, until he could get back up to the third floor, where he had his little watchtower on the west side of the house over the balcony, and especially up to the attic, his real kingdom. The trouble Grandfather Alexandre had with walking on certain days, he needed a cane, sometimes two, when his rheumatism got to be too painful, had led him to have a minuscule elevator installed in the house's central stairwell, which was not without majesty, but lacked breadth. Lacked breadth. Work on it was not yet completed, but according to the builder's plans, inspected by my father, who claimed to be an authority on elevators also, the car would be at best just large enough to be filled by one seated Alexandre. So the ground floor was ruled over by my grandfather, especially the library next to the octagonal salon, its walls completely covered with dark wood bookcases and gilt-edged books, its slightly arched ceiling painted deep blue with a few stars designed to represent a fake sky, the only shelter worthy of so much illustrious paper. The salon opened on six sides toward the sea through six high multi-paned windows and on two other sides toward the interior of the house, the library, and the dining room. The wallpaper of the, of the hallways and the small entry was full of heroes and battles from Achilles and Alicia to French explorers in Africa brandishing their torches and rifles 
in the aboriginal darkness right up to the door to the cellar, which was a truly obscure world where Alexandre coddled his wine bottles and a few hobgoblins which were useful for frightening children and would later terrify him in his old age. I didn't know all these decorative details while I was waiting in my mother's womb to see daylight with my own eyes. But from the second floor, I had an overall impression of Providence that subsequently turned out to be neither false nor exaggerated. It was a fortress on its rock, a heavy stone caprice built at great expense. My grandfather had inherited the house from his father and had done nothing except expand it, especially after the break with my grandmother, Suzanne, née Lanskoy, the result of one of those hatreds whose roots were hidden but which had divided my family for long years in this windy region of the French West Coast, where the stone is tender, the light blonde, the palm trees emaciated before they reach a few yards in height. The Charente, or as people called it, the Santons. One clan, mine, lived in Provenance, in the bright white house perched on the cliff of Pontelac. Around my grandfather and his youngest son, my father, Pierre, whereas my grandmother had chosen the marshy region of oyster beds extending from Mornac to Marin and the sea beyond the Côte Sauvage. Old Suzanne preferred the soft Venetian landscape of the Marais. Alexandre loved nothing so much as the immediate sight of the sea, its brisk and exciting air, the luxury of its waves on days when the weather was bad, the equinoctial tides would send floods of water splashing against the ramparts of Providence, decorated with painted stone statues, and when frothy sprays would spurt simultaneously on the six windows of the ground floor salon, breaking against the double panes, dripping away and leaving behind fragments of seaweed, sometimes tiny translucent crabs on those great rectangular portholes. And when the ebbing of the sea before its next assault would make the people in the salon sitting there facing the flood with a plaid blanket on their knees think that Providence was going to topple over, take a header into the huge gray and white wave that was causing everything to shake and hiding from sight the distant massive column of the Cordon Lighthouse. And I will skip ahead a few pages, and the last section is pages 31 to 32. The house had been built out of beautiful stone, and the floors were separated from the ceilings by a layer of sand and empty space, so that you didn't hear much from one floor to the next, except near the fireplaces or the stairwell. At the time of my birth, my mother had been living in Providence for more than a year after having spent the war years in Rouen. My father had begun to travel a great deal, and my mother would telephone him and speak at length in an extremely loud voice. I couldn't hear my father's voice very well, only the ringing of the phone, the sound of the ocean through the window, the abandoned note in my mother's voice. Alexandre, however, was pleasant to be around. According to his mood, he could either amuse or mobilize the energy of everyone in the house, my parents, the maid, and the gardener. Toward the beginning of the month of May, the elevator was at last finished. 
It slid up and down two shiny steel columns from the ground floor entrance to the third floor, its motor and pulleys being stuck away up on the attic level. The car was narrow and had beveled panes of glass on each side. A small blue velvet bench made it possible to sit down, but if you wanted to manipulate the inside doors, you had to be alone. My grandfather was naturally the first to try out the apparatus and showed all the more impatience to do so because he was going through an acute attack of helplessness. With a cane in each hand, he got into the car, filling it so fully that it was as if the engineer had designed a sarcophagus for the public exhibition of Alexandre. But once he sat down, he realized that the up and down button was too high for him to reach. He tried with one of his canes, which was so heavy and long that he almost broke one of the windows. In the stable, the engineer found a small, flexible stick, like Charlie Chaplin's stick, and that's how reality caught up with one of Yvonne's nocturnal visions the one in which she had seen my grandfather with three arms, since he never took the elevator except with three canes, which may have somewhat tarnished the brand new prestige of the sparkling machine, but conferred upon Alexandre a bizarre grandeur at the moment of his electrical elevation to the heart of Providence. Just after the birth of the so-called hero, l'entrée dans l'atmosphère où vivaient ceux de ma famille et les autres, dans cette solitude où j'allais moi aussi devenir un autre, se fit au milieu des éclairs et du sang comme si j'étais un cosmonaute déchiré par la vitesse, un ébouillanté de l'espace entre les mains de l'accoucheur. Le fait est que je perdis connaissance pour de longues semaines et toutes les qualités de perception, d'écoute, de sensibilité que j'avais affinées en quelques mois me furent retirées. J'étais tout entier cautérisé. L'inventaire des dégâts que je subis en quittant le dôme maternel, mon salon rouge, et surtout cet ensemble de conditions particulières qui faisaient du ventre de Suzanne une planète en soi, une planète presque semblable à la nôtre, à quelques détails près, qui donne aux voyageurs, comme dans les films d'anticipation, un sentiment d'inquiétante étrangeté. La liste complète de mes avaries, je ne saurais l'adresser sans qu'elle me tombe des mains. Trop longue, trop triste, incommensurable. Une des toutes premières mauvaises impressions que j'eus de cette vie, la même où j'écris ceci, est d'avoir perdu mes lunettes. Yes. Yes. Okay. Voilà. Un peu.
pleased to introduce to you Jan Kefelek, the author of Les Noces Barbares, the novel that won the Goncourt Prize last year, an extract from which I will now read to you. I should say that in the first paragraph of the book, there's a very innocuous little phrase. It's the description is of a young woman, Nicole, who's taking a bath. She is, the phrase says, 13 going on 14, but she looked 18. And in a way, this is a kernel around which the whole tragedy of the novel is organized. You could almost translate Les Nos Barbares, which means the barbarian wedding, as innocent, presumed guilty. Because this young child, who is going out, as she thinks, on a date with a young man whom she thinks is her fiancé, a young American serviceman. It's just after World War II. She's going out on a date, but it's really a gang rape. And she is horribly raped by three soldiers whom she will never see again, including the so-called fiancé Will, who has mesmerizingly green eyes. And as you can imagine, when the result of this is a bastard child, the shame that falls upon her and her family is, is complete. So great, in fact, that the child who is born of this rape, whose name is Ludovic, and who is, in fact, the subject of the book, is kept in an attic. He's locked up in the attic by his grandparents, who are very conservative people, bakers, who don't understand how this has happened to them. And his mother, Nicole, who is in effect a child wronged, like him, is unable to love him, simply because when she looks into his green eyes, she sees his father. She looks into the mouth of hell so that the child will search through the novel for the love of his mother, which is, of course, the one thing he will never have. But his mother is not an evil woman. Her tragedy is simply that she cannot forget. The scene that I'm going to read takes place about halfway through the book. The child is liberated from the attic by the unlooked-for marriage of his mother, who is still a young woman, to a middle-aged and reasonably well-off mechanic named Michaud. Michaud takes his new wife to his house called The Hedges, where his son Tatav is lying in wait for Ludo. Tatav is a remarkably villainous creation, a real weasel, sort of like Wackford Squeers. But what Michaud had hoped for, the, the reformation of the family, does not take place. Ludo tries to somehow become precious to his mother, but he cannot succeed, and she cannot give him what he wants. Finally, she blackmails her husband into sending him off to an asylum, where he, as a last gesture of defiance, sets a small fire and escapes. He finds a certain amount of happiness, finally, in a wreck beached on uh, the coast, not far from the place where his mother and stepfather live. 
he sets up housekeeping. He tries to forget his mother, and he cannot. And he makes his last mistake. He writes a letter to his mother, inviting her to come and visit him. And she comes to visit him, to lure him out to what was to have been his fate, but the confrontation between Nicole and her son takes a turn that she had not looked for. The word nos in the title, les nos barbares, is translated as wedding, the barbarian wedding, which would be the rape, if you like. But in another sense, nos can also mean marriage. And les nos barbares is also the story of this unholy marriage between Nicole and her son, which is consummated at the wreck at the end of the book. The scene that I'm going to read now is uh, a very valued, treasured ritual for Ludo. Every Thursday morning, when there's no school in France, he brings breakfast in bed to his mother. Ludo put the tray down on a small round table. An icy sweetness hovered around the woman, watching him through half-closed eyes, her face glazed with insomnia. Now sit down. Not that way, silly. Facing me. Don't be so shy. Ludo swung the rocking chair around toward the bed. So, come on, there's no need to be afraid. He looked up, astonished by the softness in her voice. Nicole was looking straight at him today, as if his green eyes no longer grated on her memory. You'll be leaving for the St. Paul Center the day after tomorrow. It's a boarding school for problem children. Misha will drive you. That's the way it is. I suppose you're big enough to understand. Things were getting impossible around here. You'd be better off there. And besides, the person who'll be taking care of you is a relative on Michaud's side of the family. He didn't move a muscle, keeping his eyes riveted on her. Nicole was busy arranging her pillows. It's for your own good, you know. We didn't enjoy having to make this decision. This kind of place is very expensive. They're specialists. You'll be well taken care of. You poor boy, I'm not even sure you realize how sick you are. She threw her head back and her voice became harsher. What did you expect? It's not much of a life with a kid like you. You're a liar, a thief, always snooping around. You get sent home wherever you go. You don't let on what you're thinking. You've never once called me mama, you know, Ludo. You do know that, at least, that I'm your mother, right? And even then, you don't give a damn. She was almost shouting, her hand shook as she lit a cigarette, her eyes darting all around like a bird that doesn't know where to land. Hand me the tray before it gets cold. He obeyed. Of course the coffee's stone cold now, that's just great. And you sit there with nothing to say, as usual. You're to take only the bare essentials with you. They'll give you clothes when you get there. It's about an hour's drive from here. Then there's a bus, but you'll see all that when the time comes. Someone from the center will come to get you. Try to be polite, at least. In any case, you'll have all your belongings again on the weekend. I'm not quite sure yet how it's going to be worked out, but believe me, I'm not enjoying this one bit. She examined the slices of bread and butter disapprovingly. You never put on enough butter, she said, dunking the bread in the coffee, which slopped over the rim of the bowl. At my house, I used to have fresh croissants every morning and homemade mulberry jelly. 
He'd heard that bit about the good old days a hundred times. He'd watched her turn her bread into a sponge and lift the dripping mess to her mouth a hundred times. And he'd suffered the shame of this breakfast a hundred times. A breakfast she ate disgustingly on purpose to degrade him, sometimes getting so carried away it was as if he didn't exist. Are you listening to me at least? She was getting all worked up. I'm talking to you, Ludo. Do you hear me? Yes, he said. Yes, Mama, Ludo. The bread and butter lying forgotten in the bowl collapsed soggily under the tray cloth. Ludo didn't answer. Well, what's so strange about it? It's polite to say, yes, Mama. What are you waiting for? Say, Mama, Ludo. Ludo gritted his teeth and stared at the ceiling. You have never, continued Nicole in a toneless voice, ever called me Mama, have you, Ludo? Why not? Come on, you idiot, say it. One time won't kill you. Say Mama to your mother just this once. Say it. She went pale with rage at the sight of her son huddled in the chair, shivering silently. Fine, you win. You're quite right. If you won't speak, it's because I'm not your mother. And that's the truth, Ludo, I'm not your mother. So you won't say anything? Fine, you asked for it. Your mother's an accident, you hear me? It's as if it were you, you got that? Every time I see you, every time, I see all three of them. I hear them under the yellow lamp. Every time I look at you, it's those three sons of bitches I see. It's as if it were you who beat and raped me. I'm not your mother, you hear me? Your mother's those three sons of bitches. Her voice was hoarse, poisoned with hatred. Now get out, you bastard. Get the fuck out of my life, she screeched, sitting up so violently that her coffee spilled all over the sheets. He left the room in a daze. Blundering down the stairs, he missed a step and tumbled all the way to the bottom on his back without feeling a thing. He decided he was thirsty. Turning on the two taps in the kitchen, he watched the water fall in iridescent spirals into the sink, then turned them off again, confused, unable to remember what it was he'd wanted in the first place. Bastard, bastard, his heart hammered out the cruel word. He pounded his temples with his fists, repeating, bastard, bastard, and a blinding red light swam before his eyes. He found himself out on the terrace. The silence crackled in the sun. He beat his head against the corner of the stone wall on the sharp edge. Get out. The spurting blood made Ludo feel better, and so he went on slamming his head with terrible force, like someone drunk with blows, crushing a snake to death. There's three of them. They've got axes, and they start with the arms. They're cutting logs under the yellow lamp, little ones, like yule logs. They chop right up to the shoulders, and then they hack up the legs, they hack up the bodies, but the yule logs turn back into arms and legs and the three of them underneath the yellow lamp start all over again with their axes and the head, they leave that alone and it watches them hacking away. There's three of them, they've got axes. When Ludo regained consciousness an hour later, Nicole's car was gone. It never even occurred to him that she might have come to his aid. Looking in the bathroom mirror, he was pleased to see that he'd done a good job on himself. His face was black with blood. There was a nasty gash running down his forehead, while his shirt seemed glued to his skin. Without washing himself off, 
he leaned back against the wall and slid down to sit on the floor. It's not true. I haven't got three fathers. But if it's true, they've got to tell them where I am. They've got to come get me. Tatav says they're Krauts and Jews, but me, I didn't do anything bad. I didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, I didn't get born inside her all by myself. Anyhow, it's not true. That's not where I was born. It must be freezing in there. I never could have hidden inside her igloo. When he came home that evening, Michaud was upset to find the house empty yet again. Despite her pregnancy, Nicole was never around anymore. She wanted a car? Fine, she got a car. But she used the Floride mostly to get away from her house and family. One fine day, she was going to end up in a ditch, and it would be all over for the baby. A pregnant woman is supposed to rest, not tear around on the roads after dark. Was she really pregnant? He played the first few measures of the Vini Creator on the harmonium and gave up. Even his favorite pastime was beginning to pull. On the off chance, he set the table for two. She might get back in time for supper. He considered adding a third plate, thinking of Ludo due to leave the day after next, but it would be better not to expose him to any more quarreling. And besides, the kid probably preferred to be left alone. He'd take a bit of cheese up to his room, as he always did, and spend hours scribbling like a madman on the walls. That's the way it was. Everything would be settled in a few more days. Soon, Nicole would have another child. That's what she needed, a child who was right in the head, one who was really hers instead of a poor idiot. Not that he was a bad boy, but he did have bats in his belfry, and he just couldn't help it. Even Tatav had been having trouble getting along with him lately. Losing all those verbal sparring matches with his wife had slowly embittered Michaud. He now prudently kept clear of his stepson's doings, the cause of so many affronts he had to put up with at home. And he unconsciously held a grudge against him because of his own cowardice. After all, the boy was odd, a bit too odd. Of course, he had intended to take him on as an apprentice, but what would people have said? He'd already lost certain clients since his marriage to the Blanchard girl. Some parishioners had made complaints, while others had even switched to another church. Around nine o'clock, he turned on the television, heated up a can of cassoulet, and ate without enjoyment, casually watching images flit across the screen with the sound turned off so that he could listen for the car. He was always afraid of an accident when she was late getting home. He ate slowly to give Nicole a last chance to keep him company. She arrived just as he finished peeling an apple. Ah, there you are he exclaimed, getting up to go kiss her. We're invited for dinner at my parents' place on Sunday, she shouted from the front hall, so don't waste any time when you drive Ludo to the center. I'm exhausted. He couldn't help asking, where were you? That's my business, leave me alone, and I'm not hungry, you can clear everything away. Well, good night, I'm going to bed. She had thrown her coat on the couch, turning on her heel after blowing a vague kiss in his direction. He stood motionless holding his piece of apple, swallowing his dismay. He heard her go up the stairs and down the hall, then open the door, and suddenly a scream made him drop the apple and dash upstairs. All the lights were on. Her fist clamped to her temples. Nicole was still shrieking in the bedroom doorway. Pushing her aside, he stood rooted at the sight of Ludo lying in their bed, his head a welter of blood. Thank you.
dire en passant, j'ai besoin de mettre le feu dans la crèche. Oui, c'est bien. Faut expliquer, vous voulez que j'explique oui. un peu sur l'écran Non, juste rapidement, il faut bien mettre okay, le feu okay. dans la crèche de moi. Yeah, okay. This, this scene that will be read here is the, a crash set up in the asylum, and each little uh, little sheep is uh, the representative of each child in the asylum, and the, the directress of the asylum has an insane method of uh, arranging the sheep in order of uh, good behavior, so that all the little sheep there represent all the inmates of the asylum. And I believe Ludo is about to make his escape. Son bout d'allumette tomba dans la paille et la nuit se reforma dans la cheminée. Une roseur surgit comme un verre luisant. Une odeur de fumée monta. La lumière évanouie parut se ranimer en douceur. Dans l'ombre étale, une onde rouge éveilla les formes et tout le décor se mit à divaguer. Ludo regardait les flamèches sans hardir et léchait les pattes des premiers moutons illuminés. Il se disait « Je vais éteindre » et ne faisait rien. Le feu s'étirait, chancelait. Le papier brûlé se contorsionnait avec des vapeurs acres et lançait des étincelles comme des confettis. Trop tard, jubilait-il, tout va flamber. Il admirait la vélocité du brasier qui se multipliait le long des parois, jetant des lames de clarté vers le réfectoire et commençant à ronfler. Bande de jaloux grassait-il entre ses dents, s'imaginant que Mademoiselle Rakoff, sa mère, tous, ils allaient respirer les flammes et partir en fumée. À contre-cœur, il s'éloigna vers la sortie du réfectoire, contempla une dernière fois l'incendie, son incendie, puis, fier du Noël qu'il s'était enfin donné, il s'enfonça dans la nuit. Il tremblait si fort en escaladant le portail qu'il dut s'y reposer à Califourchon. Ensuite, il se laissa tomber de l'autre côté. Il n'y voyait rien, mais il était libre et le chemin s'ouvrait noir devant lui comme un tunnel. We hope you'll join us at a reception which is in the back corner. Thank you.